Here we are at the beginning of season two, a season that was going to be something else. But in planning the season, it became so much something else that it was no longer this podcast. All that planning, in fact, will result in another podcast that I plan to announce sometime soon-ish. In the meantime, we're back to the essence of this podcast, which is embodied in the title, Improvisations on the Ledge. Somehow, I forgot the title in trying to come up with something bigger, more robust, more structured. This podcast, the one you're apparently listening to right now, is meant to be off the cuff, semi-random and possibly pointless. And yet here we are in late April, and I can't avoid the elephant in the world-sized room that is COVID-19. My thoughts can be summed up this way. To quote the avant-garde composer John Cage, I have nothing to say, and I'm saying it. So that's what this premiere episode of season two will be, covidiously covert thoughts or covidious improvisations. Stay tuned. First, this. Hey, it's Peter Saltzman. If you love improvisations on the ledge, please be so kind as to spread the word, give it five stars, and a great review. And to keep up to date with all of my activities, including this podcast, new albums, performances, and music education, be sure to visit my website at petersaltzman.com. Enjoy the show. Whenever a major earth-shattering event happens, you question what you're doing. Everybody does this. The relevance of your life's purpose. Is everything that you've been doing up to now rendered meaningless? I probably went through these emotions after 9-11, certainly after Trump was elected in 2016, which, by the way, ruined another major earth-shattering event from the week before. I speak, of course, of the Cubs winning the World Series, which lent credence to the idea that hell would freeze over when that event happened. Anyway, my initial thought after all these events is, yes, something has fundamentally changed about how I need to go about making my art. And then within 24 hours, I go back to making my art basically the same way, which is not to dismiss the tragedy unfolding in front of us, But to say that a lifetime of making art is not going to be suddenly rendered pointless, even by something as awful as COVID-19. But let's imagine for a moment that it was. Let's imagine that I now had to create my music, improvised, written, or not, on themes from this experience. What would that sound like? I'll make this short.
okay, it sounds like basically everything else I've ever done. That was kind of silly, but the question is for this episode, does a cataclysmic event like this change how you go about making your art? And if so, how? Artists worldwide are no doubt asking themselves this question in some way or another, and maybe answering it with powerful new works, but I I kind of doubt it. Not because this isn't a highly emotional, provocative story unfolding in real time in front of us, but because of this salient fact. Any artist worth his salt probably already thinks the world is totally screwed, unfathomably crazy. And I'm talking about the pre- COVID-19 world. We, as a matter of course and faith and other matters, spend our lives avoiding the world to a greater extent, trying to create our own worlds in our own images. This, of course, never works. But at its best, this, the creative act that we are engaged in, does give the world a glimpse of other worlds outside the quotidian norm. Here's a quote, one of my favorite quotes from Beethoven, or supposedly from Beethoven. It was it was given to us in a letter to uh, Goethe, the writer, by a woman who fancied herself as Beethoven's new muse. He's in his late 30s at this point. Her name is Bettina Brentano, and she was actually, before fancying herself as the muse for Beethoven, was Goethe's muse, supposedly. This quote comes from Beethoven through her, and the question is, Is it her speaking or Beethoven? Let me read different parts of it. When I open my eyes, I must sigh, for what I see is contrary to my religion, and I must despise the world which does not know that music is a higher revelation than all wisdom and philosophy, the wine which inspires one to new generative processes, and I am the Bacchus who presses out this glorious wine for mankind. I know that God is nearer to me than other artists. I associate with him without fear. I have always recognized and understood him and have no fear for my music. Those who understand it must be freed by it from all the other miseries, which the others drag about with themselves. Speak to Goethe about me and tell him to hear my symphonies. He will say that I am right in saying that music is the one incorporeal entrance into the higher world of knowledge which comprehends mankind, but which mankind cannot comprehend. A little bit about this. It probably is mostly from Beethoven. Apparently, when um, Bettina Brentano read this back to him the next day, he said something to the effect of, I said that? I must have been in one of my raptuses. Beethoven apparently would go into these raptures, whether playing, improvising, or speaking, and things would flow out of him like this, and he may not have had a memory of it. But it does make sense to have come from him whether it was modified to make it more romantic-sounding. In any case, what does this all mean? What Beethoven is saying, and what I think he's addressing, is the power specifically of instrumental music. You have to understand that in the wake of Beethoven and Mozart and Schubert and other composers of this time, instrumental music in the 19th century was thought to be one of the greatest, if not greatest, achievements of mankind in this particular area, in Europe, in Vienna, in the cultured circles that these people like Beethoven moved in. People asked, actually used to think this, that instrumental music was the highest achievement thus far of humanity. I still think this. 
its very power, its transcendence above other human activities and other art forms even, relates, I think, and Beethoven knew this, to its non-representational quality. Instrumental music both means absolutely nothing and possibly everything. You can attribute all sorts of meaning to it because it can't be defined ultimately in words. To some extent, this is possible in other arts, like abstract expressionist painting, but not quite. For music, it has the ability to be both undefinable but still tell a story. The best of instrumental music, the story is always just beyond our grasp. We can never pin it down. There's always something mysterious about it. All of which is to say about COVID-19 and everything else going on. If I've spent my whole life working in this realm or trying to work in the realm that Beethoven speaks of, why would a virus change anything about my approach? Having said all of that, I'm now going to do something that I've probably never done before. As a musical thought experiment that may or may not lead somewhere, I'm going to attempt a kind of improvised COVID-19 suite right now. Will it bring out new modes of musical thought? Will it affect my own musical path in some way? Probably not. I'm too old to change that radically. But how would I change my music, my writing, my thinking in reaction to the C-19 crisis? What would it sound like? Because another thing Beethoven talked about was that there needed to be stories embedded into abstract instrumental music in order for them to communicate something to the listener. And all of his major works have stories behind them, notably the Eroica Symphony, Symphony Number no. 3, which was originally called the Bonaparte Symphony. And it was meant as a sort of tone poem biography of Napoleon, which Beethoven sort of later rejected when Napoleon became something of a dictator. The thing is, Beethoven rarely shared the details behind any of these stories. That was for him to help give a narrative structure to his monumental work. He felt, and I think he was right, that there needed to be something to underpin all this abstract musical development so it somehow resonated with people. But here's the key thing. He wanted people to form their own stories. This is why he wouldn't share the narrative details behind the abstract notes. He thought that listeners needed to form their own stories from what they heard. And what a powerful idea that is when you think about it. What other art form can do this? Even music with words, songs, tell more or less literal stories. But with instrumental music at its best, the stories are ultimately for us, the listeners, to create out of the sounds. So now I'm going to sort of violate everything that I just said. I'm going to create a musical program, a tone poem improvisation. I'm going to create a program and then improvise on that story and see if it means anything at all, if there's any connection. My story is going to be from my own point of view, my own 
experience living during the COVID-19 crisis with the understanding that I have not been directly affected. I am not sick, nor is anybody else in my family, immediate family anyway. It's going to be in three acts. But there should, of course, be the understanding that this story is not complete. There are more acts. I don't know where this story is going to end, if it will end. But here's act one. Starting sometime in December, January, we start hearing about the coronavirus. It's in China, barely here at all. So while I'm wary and mildly concerned, like most other Americans, I'm thinking, well, you know, this stuff happens and maybe it's going to be worse than usual, but it's not really here. It's not really affecting anything about my life. Even if it's somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm a little bit concerned. And as it happens on January 24th, I'm going into surgery for a procedure, which I won't talk about. And right before they are about to put me under, because I had to be completely out for this, one of the nurses who's literally rolling me into the operating theater mentions that there's the first case in Illinois. And she had just heard this on the news right before she walked in there. And we all kind of looked at each other, her, the other nurses, none of the doctors, the surgeon wasn't there yet. And they all kind of went, well, should we be concerned? And then 20 seconds later, I'm unconscious. So I went to sleep with this thought, a kind of inchoate thought that maybe we have to start worrying about this. So now I'm going to improvise a tone poem on that.
I wake up from surgery, more concerned at that moment with the aftermath of the surgery. But now, in the back of my mind, I have this thought. There's a guy in Chicago who's got it. I mention this to my wife and kids when I get home. They already knew about it. But it's my wife's birthday. We're going to celebrate regardless. But in the back of my mind, anxiety is creeping up. The next week or so, I'm at Walgreens dropping off a FedEx package, and I notice people buying like 12, 15 bottles of hand sanitizer, all they can literally hold. I pride myself on taking the middle ground in most things, so I just buy one of those little bottles. Just one. I'm paranoid, but I'm also paranoid about being too paranoid. A few days later, while dropping off another FedEx package, I buy some Lysol and wipes. I'm getting on my wife and kids about not being paranoid enough. I'm still teaching lessons, but I'm making all the kids and adults wipe down their hands with wipes I bought at Walgreens before they take lessons. Then I wipe down the keyboard after. And I'm still going to some people's houses to teach lessons, but starting to think this is probably going to be the last week. And then one Thursday night after teaching some lessons in Brookfield, my wife and I decide to go to Costco, realizing it might be time to stock up a bit. We walk in with the idea that at least we'll come home with a couple of those big packs of Kirkland toilet paper. We walk in, and the checkout lines run all the way to the back of the store. The checkout lines. We walk out. Now I'm starting to worry about toilet paper. We go to Jewel and manage to find one 12-pack of a brand I've never heard of. My wife, for some reason, also buys a lot of dishwashing tablets and tuna fish, bleach. Still, nobody's really practicing social distancing. We're starting to hear those two words, but so far in Illinois, only a few deaths. At this point, I'm more worried about Italy, but the experts are saying we're the next Italy in a matter of weeks. On the way home from Jewel, we get an automated phone call on our cell phones from my daughter's high school. Regretfully, the school building has been shut down for at least the next two weeks. It's the second week of March, and spring break is coming the next week. So maybe it's only going to be a single week of e-learning. We'll see. We get home, and my daughter, who has received the same message, is celebrating in the kitchen with my son. No school. Two weeks later, she won't be celebrating. A few days after that, our town's mayor becomes the first in Illinois to order a lockdown, and a few days after that, Governor Pritzker closes down Illinois. We're being told to maybe stay six feet away from each other. My daughter and son are locked in. He can't drive Uber anymore. People are starting to die in noticeably larger numbers. Still, for me, this is not much different in a way than what I normally do, hiding from the world, avoiding people as I take walks. I've been doing this for years. I'm more worried about the others, the more sociable people in my family. My daughters, my wife, my son, he's just as antisocial as me. And I'm worried about income. I realize I will need to convert my students to Zoom lessons, and this is going to take a while. Some just want to quit. They want to withdraw. And as Act 2 closes, we're all now withdrawing, whether we like it or not. We're on lockdown.
We've adapted to this life, but now people are dropping dead by the hundreds and thousands. I'm no longer thinking about Italy, I'm thinking about New York City. We're all fine in this house, but I worry about my parents and mother-in-law. They're fine too. I've managed to convert all of my students to Zoom lessons. We have a Zoom Seder for Passover, which is sort of annoying, but I guess it's better than nothing. I've stopped paying attention to Trump at all. What's the point? He'll never change. Nor will most of his rabid supporters who are now chomping at the bit to open up America. I'm conflicted, though. While they come across as idiots, this can't go on forever. The not knowing how it ends comes to dominate my emotions. A certain sense of timelessness, but the wrong kind, settles in. A drama needs closure, but there are many more acts to follow, and none of us know what they will be. So as I close my own little mini tone poem drama here, I'm going to end with the wrong kind of timeless improvisation. An improvisation that should reflect the inconclusiveness of the situation. Thank you.
So that was my little thought experiment. Now here's the reality. What COVID-19 reveals to me is the extent to which we are all part of this machine, a somewhat agreed-upon version of reality that I probably agreed less to than most, and that I was always working somewhat outside of the machine, trying, in effect, to build a new one, failing over and over, to be sure, but doing that nevertheless. In the end, there was no real reason for me to change what I was doing at all. I've always been doing this, working on the fringes of the machine, playing my bit parts in it, acquiescing somewhat to survive. Isn't that what all artists do throughout history? We have to survive, so that usually means playing a part in the agreed-upon machine that humanity has built over millennia, but still isolating ourselves from it all in order to build our own versions of reality. And yet, to say that the COVID-19 crisis hasn't changed me at all would be disingenuous. In listening back to these improvisations, I do hear something different. The program I built for myself brought out some new ideas, new ways of approaching improvisation, new musical narratives. 